0: Oh my goodness. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you, all right. It's a great honor to speak to you this morning. When I was invited and then said yes, I need to admit I did it with some fear and with some trepidation. To come back and address you, the next generation of leaders that will take my place one day. My fellow colleagues, uh, you that run such a significant, complex organization as the staff and the faculty. all oh, the faculty. You who are going to watch my every move for the next 20 minutes, my every thought from historical context to social correctness to what theological tradition I stand in from homiletics to hermeneutics, theology and philosophy, and I'm supposed to still do this, right, in 18 and a half minutes? So I thought, well, I need to sound smart to this crowd, to prove to this crowd that I didn't just learn something here, but I still am learning. So I decided I know what I'll do. I'll quote Raymond Brown, and then J.I. Packer, Grudem, Gordon Fee, Wimber, Hybels, Nowen, Augustine, and then, you know, Sider, Christopher Hall, Hebert, Odin, Wolf, Longman III, Alistair McGrath, Wesley, and Calvin. Then I went, no, no, I know what I'll do. I'll quote N.T. Wright and Piper and MacArthur and McLaren. That will add some spice to our morning, and when everyone thinks I'm with them, they'll all turn on each other later. That should cover the Anglican reform, Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Charismatic, Mystical, Mennonite, Wesleyan, Evangelical, but ecumenical ethos of the faculty, staff and students. As my concern of what I thought you would think of me took over, I was reminded of my years living here, living on the fourth floor for four long years. They were great years and they were difficult years post-crash. From exploring my faith to 3 a.m. runs for pizza to wings at the Tickle toad. From five points of Calvinism to the deep struggles of what it would mean to follow Jesus in a very complex global world. They They were years I would not trade. And as my thoughts continued to run, my thoughts led me to the bottom of our library here. It was my third year in my undergrad. And week after week I would read catalogs from seminaries around the world. You see, I was determined to be someone, to be a great thinker, a great professor, and I used to think, I need to go to a real university, no offense, Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Duke, Notre Dame, not Harvard, they don't like that truth thing, I thought, over their coat of arms anymore. I wanted to show the world that I could be an evangelical and think. I wanted to show the world that I could be welcoming, but not necessarily affirming. To stand with truth in the whirlwind of pluralism, to stand for Jesus, for scripture, still the need for conversion, for the work of the cross as the only full place to meet the divine. I wanted to value my fundamentalist history and still stand strong as I face the future. And I wanted to cry out for the desperate need for the gospel to be preached to every family group on earth. Was any of that wrong? No. No. We need thinking evangelicals. We need the gospel to be preached. We need light and darkness. And we all know this in this room. We need people that love God with their mind and their body and their soul. Yet it was in the midst of that drive, reading those catalogs, that insatiable desire that the Lord suddenly spoke to me. John, why are you doing all of this? Well, I love you, Lord, I said. I mean, this is why I'm doing it. Why? He said. God, don't you get it? You need to be defended. Don't you see all the garbage that I read in chapters? Those liberal scholars tearing away everything that we value. The Apostles' Creed doesn't even work anymore. John, why? Well, God, you called me, didn't you? Before the beginning of time, you told me I was called to be one of your spokesmen. Why? Because I don't ever want to be looked down upon again. I'm not stupid. I need people to like me, to know that I'm not ugly, that I'm worth something, and all this education will give me what I need, what I must have, and obviously what you haven't given. Silence. And then the dark realization started spreading over me that I was spending my best on something that wasn't worth even dying for, the applause of people. See, my motives weren't about God's glory. They weren't about my freedom so the world could see Jesus clearly. They were about self-worth issues, sin mixed with truth, poison that began to rot my very soul. And it was clothed all in good religious calling. Was it all wrong? No. Was much sincere? Yes. But it was not the grand prayer uttered by Jesus' cousin. I must decrease and you must increase. Tyndale, you asked me to start this new year with you actually a new decade, with a theme of renewal and new beginnings. And I come to you as a fellow journeyer to say this. The only renewal, the only fresh beginning that will effect and affect all of what we are is asking God to be glorified first. It's Isaiah 6. We know it well. See his glory be undone. All our motives, all our sin, all our pain, all our history is revealed. Experience unnatural mercy and love. Then and only then. Do we get to serve? It was Jesus' half-brother, James, who spoke about this so well long ago. Near the end of his letter in the book of James, he speaks about friendship and its connections to renewal. I've got a Bible, PDA, or hard copy, you can turn to it, James 4.4. 4. He says these very difficult words. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy of our God. As I said to our church over the last few months, the words jump off the page, don't they? They slap us, how rude we think, how unCanadian! how uncaring, how judgmental we cry. Yet this saying comes out of a broken heart and they come from the tears of heaven. You adulterous people. This is a marriage issue, God says. I am a jealous lover. Throughout the whole of Holy Scripture, God only uses this phrase of his loved people. God had joined himself with the people of Israel by graciously electing them and bringing them into that covenant relationship with himself. And now he's saying it again to his people, the church. What you're doing is like having sex with someone who's not your spouse. And you like it. It's friendship. You have the same perspectives, aims, ambitions, attitudes, agreements as the world, and the proof is in your everyday life. There is no difference, he writes, to his community. Why do you have such an intense and deep affection for the world system I saved you out of? It's self-glorifying, self-serving, self-indulgent, self-satisfying. It is self-serving at its root. And all of it you know is hostility towards God. It's the opposite of friendship. Why are you doing this to my half-brother, he writes. As the rebuke is felt on there in our face and our hearts, then James reminds us of one of the greatest themes in Scripture. He doesn't leave us. He reminds us of God's love. Or do you think, he writes, that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell within us? Oh, how we miss the great love and power and work of God because sometimes we have made the fatal mistake of connecting this to the modern word of jealous. Our God is not suspicious, wrongfully envious of the success of others, and he's not distrustful at all. He is married, and he loves his people so much he is jealous of them. It's the opposite form of jealousy that tears at the fabric of any church. What did our God say at the giving of the Great Ten? Did he not say, I am the Lord your God who got you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? Don't have any other gods before me, he says. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am what? A jealous God. Hear me, Tyndall. this morning. The head of all of us says these words. God will brook no rival. God wants to dwell among us, he did through Jesus, and if you're a Christian today, he does through his spirit. Peter and Paul tell us, right, that we are his temple, his chosen priesthood, his people, he longs for us, he, he is jealous for us too. The hope is not done, James continues, and he says, he gives us more grace. God's grace is completely adequate and is given to meet the requirements imposed on us by his loving jealousy. God is holy. Make no mistake about it. He is jealous. He is judge. He is transcendent. He is all-powerful. He is that consuming fire. Yet he is also mercy, grace, love, and he willingly supplies all we need to meet his encompassing demands. He gives us Jesus' death and resurrection. He covers all our sin and its ugliness. He gives us the spirit of God that convicts us, the one that empowers us, the one that transforms us, and is the only one, hear me, is the only one that could ever in our core remove our friendship with the world. God's grace is such that it has the power to overcome the vices that the human spirit tends. Grace leads to freedom. Grace leads to victory. Grace leads to second chances. Grace leads us to really see where our motives are at. Grace leads to conquering the very things that haunt us, haunt this institution, haunt my local church. Grace leads us to freedom. Augustine did get it right when he wrote these simple words. God does give what he demands. James says, that's why scripture says, God opposes the proud. but He shows favor to the humble and oppressed. One wrote, pride shuts itself off from God for three reasons. When you're in pride, you don't know you have need. It cherishes the middle finger, independence. And it does not recognize sin. A pride like that can't receive help, the person wrote, because it does not know it needs help. And therefore, it never can ask. It loves, but not God. It loves itself. Then the verse we've heard. If you did the church scene for a while. Uh, submit yourself, therefore, to God and resist the devil and, and he'll flee from you. Submit is a military term. Rank under, but do it voluntarily. And then he says, resist the devil. Not metaphorically, literally. Resist him and you'll have to go. Resist. Fight against the harsh captivity. Stand against the enemy of this institution, of your family, your small group, your soul, your church. There is no middle ground. Stand with the power of God against your old master. And when you say yes to God and your motives are cleansed by him, in word and deed, the power of Jesus becomes present and the kingdom of darkness cannot stand. And then these words. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. The phrase, come near to God, means to have intimate fellowship and relationship with God himself. It was a technical term I learned used to refer to the work of priests in the temple. It was a time of dealing with sin, coming with an attitude that I'm about to meet the creator of all things, and I sure ain't him. It's Exodus 20. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. I love these words. This is more than simply A call to resolve, I'm going to have a better spiritual life this year. It is to fully enter the presence of God, to reside there, to be comfortable there, to be at home. It's a longing for heaven on earth, to walk in the garden again with our creator with no shame anymore. And then he says, God will come near to you. Don't miss the power and the promise of this. God, in his promise and in his power, chooses to approach us unworthy. Real renewal beyond the churchy language of any of our churches or our day is found here. Please hear me. you the students, and this is when everyone needs to look at me, you the students, we need you. The world needs you. The church, trust me, needs you. But we need a group of students willing to put aside what they think they want to be, or should be, and ask God what his will is. What would give him the most glory? For when we do that, the overflow is that we get not only freedom, but we get to enjoy him, and he comes near to us. And ready? The only voice that you'll hear will be his, and it's the only one that matters because it's the only one that's going to last. You, the staff, you, the faculty, we, the students, look up to you. We watch you. Let me remind you, we watch you carefully. How are you? Are you drawing near? Is it about God anymore and his glory? Do you love him? Do you love us as students? Do you even love the local church anymore? You have so much power. You have so much influence, so much talent and ability. But please, I beg you, be the person we need you to be. Not the person you think you're supposed to be or what we think you should be. See, beyond your intelligence and your degrees or ability, your attitudes and your biases are seen by all of us. And you can move us to great good or terrible evil. And my walk here showed me both. You have a very high calling. The church needs people that care about God's glory first. One of the questions I ask you faculty especially, because I value you so much, is do you care after the many years of serving and searching anymore. Have I arrived? Absolutely not. But I'm slowly beginning to see that what matters is not what I thought, and freedom isn't really where I thought it was either. I'm beginning to see that my motives weren't pure and aren't still pure, but I'm begging God to change me. I end with a prayer we've prayed at our church in the last two months. It's a simple prayer. It sounds churchy, and it's dangerous, but really, it's needed for new beginnings. Lord, do whatever you need to do in my life, anything, for your glory first, for my freedom second, so the world can see Jesus clearly in me. Only pray it if you're willing to deal with the one that knows all, sees all, has the power to forgive and heal, to restore all, and to call you out. Before I pray this prayer with you, let me quote one of the many names I started with, and hopefully with the right motive. Henry Nowen, who spoke, I think, right here years ago. I was rereading his book on Christian leadership the other day, and it struck me. It's Jesus who heals, not I. It's Jesus who speaks words of truth, not I. It's Jesus who's Lord, not I. My prayer... For myself, and it's genuine, and for you, this place I love so deeply, is that this can move from our heads to our hearts. So whether staff or faculty or student or guest or whoever you are, if you're willing, because the theme is renewal, pray the prayer we've been praying as a church and see what God does. I have no clue what he's going to do. He's boss. I just work for him. (laughs) But pray it. One thing I know that since I've started praying it, my life has fallen apart in a great way. And I'm really happy he's doing that in me. So join me, and then we'll be done. Lord, head of this church, head of this institution, head of our lives, I mean, you know us, Lord. I mean, you do, deeply. You've called us with different callings and different roles. We're good with that. But beyond all that... We come to you as a group of people, old and young and in between, and just say these words. (laughs) Lord, do anything you need to do in me. Anything. For your glory, for our freedom, and let me just note, Jesus, we need freedom in the church so the world can see Jesus clearly again. Help us out, Lord, because without you we're done. And we swear our allegiance to you as Savior and Lord. And all of God's people said, may God bless you as you start this year.